Thank you. Now for the reading of God's word this morning, we invite you to follow along on the screen or in your bulletin. It's printed this morning, Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. This is again a parable of Jesus as we're continuing on in our series, looking at the parables of Jesus that teach us about true spirituality. Matthew 13, 24 to 30, says the word of the Lord. Jesus put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is the the reading of God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning you would teach us from your inspired, inerrant, authoritative word that we trust. May it form in us something that we can't form in ourselves. So as we've just sang, Lord, Transform our hearts, Lord, and start with mine. That's what we pray this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's a, uh, a man named Malcolm Muggeridge, who's a, he's a journalist in um, England, back in the mid part of the 20th century. He uh, wrote many things in uh, newspapers, and particularly The Guardian was who he worked for. Uh, but he wrote a, a long book kind of detailing his life and his journey as a journalist. But he has one metaphor particularly that struck me recently. He talks about how humans are always a, a part that is in search of a play. So I don't know if any of you, I know one particularly, I know Brian has been involved in plays in the past. But I don't know if any of you have been involved in any kind of shows or plays or musical, maybe as, as a kid. Um, this may shock you. But I was in three high school musicals when I was in high school. Um, and let me tell you, I, I had some pretty important roles, usually things like background person number four. Um, rarely did I have actually a name attributed to my title because I was not particularly interested in being the guy um, singing on stage. Um, I always had these small roles. I was kind of shy of it and either shy or maybe as I got older, too cool for it. So I I just never really was the guy in the front, but I think the metaphor does work for us that in some sense, we all know that we have a part to play in life, the grand grand play or the grand drama that is life. Um, But until you find the play that you're in, it's hard to know what your part is to use that metaphor that Muggeridge uses. Deep down, we're searching for our part in the play and how we relate to the other people who have different parts in that same play. So just to relate to where we're going this morning with the theme of our sermon, 
uh, you'll notice in the bulletin it's talking about community, looking at the idea of community and the role of that in each of our lives. But our generation, maybe you've heard this, if you haven't, hear it now. We've been called the lonely generation. Nearly half of Americans, according to one study, feel alone or left out either sometimes or all of the time. 12% of those same people that were interviewed in that study said they have zero close friends. And if you go back 30 years ago, that's, that number has tripled, meaning that 30 years ago, only 4% of people said they didn't have any close friends. To just take it another level, 49% of Americans said they have three or fewer close friends. And um, yeah, just to kind of lighten it for a moment, one person has said maybe the greatest miracle that Jesus ever achieved in his life was the fact that he was a man in his early 30s who had 12 close friends. Which I'd never thought of it that way until recently, but you know, that's quite true. I don't know if I could say I have 12 close friends. I could say I have a couple. You probably maybe put me in that 49% category, maybe three or fewer close friends. But we live in a world of maybe a pandemic of, of, of uh, loneliness in some sense. And yet here's Jesus who identified 12 close people and he brought them alongside in his life uh, at a really crucial moment. So this series we're looking at is identifying, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we've looked at cultural values, things that anybody in the world or in our culture today would say, that's a good thing. We've been looking at some cultural values and then in this season of Lent, looking at how the cross of Jesus transforms that cultural value into something truer than we ever could have imagined. And so we've looked the last two weeks at the values of curiosity and silence. And today we're looking at community. No one wants to be lonely. No one wants to live their life isolated. And yet, how does the cross of Jesus create community in the truest possible sense? That's basically where we're going this morning. And so as we begin this morning looking at community, we look at this parable of Jesus in Matthew 13. Beginning in verse 24, he says this, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. So the first point I want to bring up about community is that community is good. And maybe in a lonely world, we've forgotten that it's good. It says here that good seed was sowed in the field. So a few things about community before we go deeper into that idea of it being good, because we're going to unpack that in a moment. But just a few things before that I want to say about community. First is that community is necessary. We are not meant to be lonely or isolated people. Our physical, emotional, spiritual selves need community. We need other people in our lives. There's a reason that God said in Genesis 2, before sin was in the world, after he created Adam, he immediately turned and said, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he created a helper fit for him, Eve, woman. And because more than one person was created, that means that community is not optional. If community were not important, God would have only created one person. But because he created more than one person, and he created the ability for that one person to then create other humans, 
Therefore, we live with other people and therefore community is not optional, but necessary. Like a nail needs a hammer to be useful and purposeful, so we need other people or else we feel the lack of purpose. Secondly, community is needed. It's not just necessary, but it's needed. We physically cannot do life on our own. It's impossible to live in isolation, I would say. We require and need others for our physical, emotional, spiritual well-being. Even the Mayo Clinic says that, quote, friendships enrich your life and improve your health. Even just from a purely health, physical perspective, it's needed. There was an article recent, re, written recently about some of the effects of the pandemic. You know, many of us had to go into isolation or still are. And the effects that that has on us, not just emotionally, but even spiritually. There's an article written, uh, quote, empty pews are an American public health crisis. That, and again, this isn't the reason I want people to come to church necessarily, but it's one of the effects of not coming to church is your health actually has been proven to deteriorate when you're not around other people. And so folks that spent the first 50 years of their life sitting in a pew most Sunday mornings that now have not done that for the last two years, their health has actually deteriorated because they're missing something that their body needs, their physical self was created for. And so most of all, like I've already said, community is inherently good. And when the Bible says good, that word also can mean beautiful or complete. Community is good. Again, we've already said it's not good that man should be alone. So therefore, that implies that it is good for man or woman to be around others. Community is good because we're all made in God's image. When God created humans in Genesis 1, he says... At the end of creating humans, after, after he created everything else, he said, now it's very good because humans are here. It is very good. Humans are unique in the world, even greater than the creation, even, cre- even greater than the birds of the air or the fish of the sea or the animals on the earth. It wasn't until God created humans that he said, this is very good. Humans have distinct value because they're made in God's image. Each of us are unique Uniquely individual, created with a purpose in relationship to one another. We look different. We have different personalities. We're distinct and unique in a way that is particular to us. But we are also distinct in that we are common together. That when we are together, we are something unique that nothing else can be. We are designed to be people who beautifully love each other, who listen well to one another, who care well, who bear one another's burdens, who bring joy to others, who are friends to others, who laugh and experience life to the fullest with others, who are there with each other to bear life with one another. Community is good because we're made in his image. Community is also good because humans have been given distinct purpose in the world to bear fruit. And again, you may have heard me say this earlier already, but I think it's impossible to bear fruit in isolation on your own. For as as many of us now that work from home and have a computer or a phone that can do so much in isolation, that still is limited in the fruit that you actually can bear. We were planted in the Garden of Eden to bear fruit and to work the garden and to do so together. And that continues on today through whatever jobs or work that we have. So we work together in teams 
then to accomplish the good and purposes of the world. Together, we do justice. We make beautiful art. We care for the planet. We establish order. We tend gardens, create new things, technologies, things that make the world better. We create things to entertain one another, etc., etc. All this requires togetherness. Just like we said, Dennis and I were talking this week about doing outside work. We're very limited, just the two of us, just doing all this outside work together. So if we had a group of eight or ten of us, we could do some amazing, beautiful things just in our little plot of land here at the church. We're better together. And we're all under the umbrella of the collective common person of doing everything for the glory of God, which is what Paul says later. He says, no matter what you do, do everything for the glory of God. And so therefore, when we do things together for good, um, we do it because we are image bearers designed to do things together for the glory of God. And that gets into the last little point about why community is good. Community is good because it actually reflects God himself. In the prayer we prayed at the beginning of the service from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, which we used during the season of Lent, it very intentionally and distinctly finishes the prayer by talking about how God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three, mysteriously as one. Three distinct, unique persons in one unified deity. The mystery of the Trinity. The beautiful enigma of, of who God is. God is in himself a living community who relate to one another in perfect unity and love. Have you ever thought about that? There's a reason that God is three in one because he himself perfectly shows unity and community. And in creating us, humans, he has invited us into that eternal community of himself. That is the essence of why we exist. To be drawn into that beautiful, eternal community of God himself. True communion and community with God is our destiny as humans. As the front of your bulletin says, it's a famous quote from St. Augustine. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Why is that the case? Because we're designed to be part of that eternal fellowship with God. And yet we know that that's hard to do now because relationships with one another are broken. We live in a fractured community, a fractured world. And that then fractures our relationship with God, entering into that eternal community. So this is the second big point. If the first point is community is good, you know, it says in verse 24, like, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. So again, that's the good seed that God planted. But the second point is, is that community in this life that we live now is hard. Verse 27 The servants of the master of the house came and are very confused because weeds are growing in their field where good seed was planted. And the question comes, you planted good seed here. How then does it have weeds? It's a how question. 
And that's the question we're going to ask this morning too. How, how did community break? How is community so hard today? Why is it hard? Why is it not as beautiful and as good as what we just mentioned? All those good things that we said community can be, why don't we experience that all the time? The workers say, didn't you just plant good seeds? And the implication here would be is that, God, I thought that things would always be healthy because there were only good seeds here. Right? That's how things are designed. Good seeds that are nurtured well grow. There shouldn't be any foreign substance there by itself if it's just good seed. And what I want to show you here, right, it's very important. God put the good seed there. And so therefore, the brokenness in community that we see in the parable and that we see in our world today is not God's fault. Because he planted the good seeds there. The enemy came and planted weeds among the good seed. In the mystery of night, in the darkness and in the shadows, and then running away and fleeing, that's where weeds came in. That's where brokenness emerged. And again, if you take that and look at the Genesis story, you see the harmony, right? Of the serpent in the garden, sneaking in and deceiving Adam and Eve and saying, did God really say? And that's essentially the enemy planting the weeds here. And humans then rebelled. God did not break community. The enemy broke community. Community was designed good, but things went wrong because of an antagonistic attack. When the enemy showed up, things changed. The word enemy here means hostile one. He's one who created hostility. This is a clear reference to, again, the serpent in Genesis 3. Or as we know now, Satan or the devil, who later on in verse 36, where Jesus is explaining the parable. By the way, if you just... If you've had a moment, a couple of moments where you've blanked already or, or kind of lost your train of thought, just go to verse 36 and following and Jesus explains the whole parable. It's one of the beautiful parts of scripture is that it explains itself. That Jesus goes out of his way to explain it. But if you go down to verse 36, Jesus explains who all these people are in the parable. Uh, he goes on to explain that the devil is the one who came and planted. Uh, in verse 39 here it says, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So there it is. Uh, And the devil just means the one who is uh, the antagonist. Or even as one literal translation can say, he's the one who splits. That's That's what diabolos means, or devil, the splitter. So what is he splitting? He's splitting community. Splitting humanity. That's his solo purpose in life. What a wicked purpose to be a splitter. And he's done a pretty good job of it. This is because the enemy knows that community is good and that it only draws people closer to God because it reflects him so beautifully. And so the devil or the enemy here or Satan is just simply deceiving. And he does so so sneakily. Notice here the intentionality of how it says he comes in and he plants the weeds and then went away sneaks off in the darkness of night. Scholars tell us that the weeds here, these, and this invasive species of weeds that is planted here, they say it's most likely uh, something that's known as darnel, which is a weedy ryegrass with poisonous black seeds that resembles wheat 
in its early stages. But when it grows to maturity, it looks very different. So that is to say, at the beginning growth stage, the seeds of the wheat and the seeds of the weed look very similar. But as they mature and grow, one turns into wheat and one reveals itself as an ugly weed. It's unhealthy, disruptive, and even deadly. And worst of all, at the root level, they connect to the good plants, meaning you can't pull up the weeds when they grow because then as Jesus says, or as the master of the house says, if you pull them up, you're gonna pull up the wheat too. So the implications for us of this with community is hard is relationships are hard. It's 1119 on a Sunday morning. Odds are you probably had a relational spat with somebody already today. If you didn't, praise God, it's grace. But relationships are hard. We misread one another. We miscommunicate. Friends come and go. They betray and hurt us. Love comes and goes. Mistrust is so easy to come about. It's just, it's easy to have relationships be hard. And even the church can be hard. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, it's essentially Paul showing up to the Corinthian church and saying, get along. Stop sinning. Stop being against each other. Because even the earliest church had a hard time. Because sin is still involved. Even for uh, people who have been made righteous, sin is still part of it. Churches are not perfect places. And that's why churches, healthy churches, are ones that are quick to repent. Quick to publicly confess sin. And we try to do that as a church here. Albeit unperfectly ourselves. And yet not all is lost. There's little moments and glimmers here and there of what community is meant to be, right? We we do experience greatness in relationships. And we cherish those moments. But what do we do to try to restore what's been lost? How do we live in hard community today? This is where the third point comes in, which is the reality that this text shows us that community in this life until eternity comes Community today will always be mixed. Wheat and weeds growing together, as the parable teaches us. Again, he says, don't pull them up, because if you pull them up, they'll probably pull up the others unintentionally, and we don't want that. So he says, let both of them grow together until the harvest. So the purpose of life is not to eliminate or to cancel the weeds of the world. If you heard the term cancel culture recently, how easy it is to, if you disagree with someone or if you're relationally off to say, I'm gonna cancel that and just un- eliminate it from my life and cancel them. Do you see how this passage kind of rings right into the middle of that and says, no, you can't do that. Let the wheat and the weeds grow, grow together. If you don't agree with someone, you don't just cancel them or unfriend them or block them or easily dismiss them now. I would say that war is the greatest example of cancel culture, right? That we're experiencing now in Ukraine and Russia. War is the ultimate cancel culture in that you literally kill someone for not agreeing with you. You purge the world of them. Is that what God wants? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Wheat and weeds are to symbolize? I don't think so at all. And that's why we we react so strongly against war. 
Contrarily, Jesus says, let both of them grow together until the harvest. Life together today is meant to be a mixed community. Meaning we don't cancel, but we learn to live alongside one another in patience and in love. Because this is how God designs it. This is how he wants us to struggle together. And I would say even the church The church is a mixed community and always will be until the end of the age. Because ultimately, only God knows our hearts. Even the pastor doesn't know if you're a wheat or a weed necessarily. Again, fruit reveals itself or honesty reveals itself. But the reality is we bear with one another. We grow together and we push each other towards good uh, intentions in the world and towards good biblical truth. Now, I should say here, it is important to note that there's no example in this passage of a wheat turning into a weed or a weed turning into a wheat. It just says they grow together, then they're separated. But I still think we can go there by saying, you know, as a church together and as a world together, we bear with one another and we push one another towards the compassion of Jesus and showing the love of Christ to one another. And so a few implications of this is, I think, a call to a a deep and abiding civility in the world. You know, respecting differences, sharing the earth together, respecting one another, listening to one another, the common grace of God towards all people, not giving up on each other. The church should be leading the way in civility. It's a, it's a call to love. Jesus really said, you shall love your enemies. Remember that passage in Matthew 5? Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says, love your enemies. Love the weeds, Jesus says. It's a call to compassion, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. Jesus looked out on the crowds in Matthew 9 and had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is a call to justice, to fight for the good of all people, even your enemies, even those who are different than you. But ultimately to leave the justice of vengeance to God, to not be seeking out revenge, but to leave it into God's faithful hands. Romans 12 says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Amos 5, famously quoted by Martin Luther King Jr. in his I Have a Dream speech, says, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And all this creates time for friendships to emerge, for community to be longed for, for people to come to Christ, and to pray that God would reveal himself in that civility, in that patience as wheat and weeds growing together. So we get to the last point here. How does the cross of Jesus play into this? We sang this, I think, beautiful song earlier. The wondrous cross brought down the wall, stilling the strife between us all. Now from all flesh, Gentile and Jew, he forms one body from the two. The call today is for a saving faith in Jesus 
because he is the master of the house, as verse 27 shows us. The call is to come to him and to put your faith in him, not because of fear of being one of the burned weeds that's mentioned here at the end. We can't ignore that, that there, these weeds are burned at the end because ultimately they are, they are dangerous to the wheat at the judgment. But we don't come to faith out of fear of that, but we come to faith because of the promise of true community that Christ offers in him alone. How is true community found and accomplished and realized? Because of the cross. It brings down the wall. Let me give you an illustration. There's a, maybe you know the name Leo Tolstoy. He was a novelist and writer. Um, I admittedly have not read much of him. He's, he's a hard guy to read. Um, but there's this illustration that he, he talks about the legend of the green stick. Maybe you've heard of this. Um, but he talks about this, this green stick that as a kid, he was told that his family possessed this wonderful secret that could make all people happy, a secret which would mean that no one would ever die and there'd be no more war or suffering. And they talked about it being this little green stick that was buried at the edge of the ravine in this certain part of the world. And as a boy, Tolstoy believed in the power of the green stick and tried many times to go find it. And the allure of this little green stick and its ability to make all people everywhere happy stayed with him his entire life until he asked his family to bury his body without ceremony in a simple wooden coffin at the sight of the little green stick. And they said at that funeral, it was a very moving experience because of the symbolism of the hope of the green stick that would bring all people together one day. And you know what Christians would say, right? That the cross is the fulfillment of the green stick that Leo Tolstoy was looking for. That in this stick that Jesus hung on for the sins of the whole world, truly there would be no more death, no more war or suffering ultimately. And that people would be reconciled to one another through this literal uh, sacrifice of love on the cross. Eugene Peterson shares this illustration as well. He says, imagine a group of people, uh, this imaginary scenario, a group of people living in a warehouse with just these tiny little windows. And they've always lived in this warehouse. They've never been outside the warehouse. They didn't know anything exists outside of the warehouse. And one day, some of the children who were living in this warehouse climbed up to these little windows that were at the top that were covered over in dust and grime because no one had ever really gone up there to look at them. And these little children got up there and wiped all the stuff away and looked outside and they saw the world and they saw other people and they saw communities, they saw bicycles, they saw trees, they saw things. And then imagine that they were looking at these people and then all of a sudden they see a group of people who are all coming together and pointing up at something in the sky. And they look excited and they look happy, but the people in the warehouse can't see the sky because the window stops. They can only see this far. And so they never really knew if they were looking at something. Uh, it could be anything because they don't know anything that's out there. And then imagine if one of those kids one day actually cut a door out of the warehouse, were out of the warehouse, got all of his friends out, and then discovered the sky that was above them and discovered all along that it just was a bird flying in the sky, a beautiful bird that they were all seeing. 
Peterson uses that illustration to show, he says, this is what happens when we open the Bible. When we enter the totally unfamiliar world of God, a world of creation and salvation stretching endlessly above and beyond us, life in the warehouse never prepared us for anything like this. Ephesians 2 says that now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you remember that word from earlier today? It's the same word talking about the enemy in the parable. That in Ephesians 2, through the cross, Jesus kills the hostility, kills the enemy who came in and sowed all that weed of destruction. The hostility and the enemy are antagonistic to God, and they are what's breaking down community. So the invitation to us during this season of Lent is to experience that true community that Christ offers, to be reconciled to God, who is true community in and of himself, and thereby be reconciled to one another in trueness. And that's why the church is the reconciled people of God, the truest example of what community can be this side of eternity. Not perfect, we're still sinners, but we're the truest example of what reconciled community can be. So how do we live in a wheat and weeds world? Not knowing who is which, trying to follow Jesus. We live under the grace of Jesus. Let me finish with this quote by Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German man who lived through World War II and wrote on community. And what he talks about with true community as grace. Let me finish with this quote. What, an, what, it, what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have that gift every day. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brothers is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with fellow Christians. Amen. Heavenly Father, would you help us to see the, the cross this morning as the ultimate bringer of community? That indeed you created it good, that we long for it, we need it. And yet in our life experience today, it's hard and it's mixed and life is, is tough because community has been fractured. But the cross of Jesus has brought us together. You've broken down the dividing wall. There is hope. There is hope. And one day will be truly fulfilled in eternity. So Lord, as, as we gather as this church this morning, help us to be filled with that hope of what it can be, what we need. May we even strive to be part of it and take the, take the gamble to jump into community 
trusting that it is what our soul longs for. It's all grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.